Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the glaring possibility that Vladimir Putin is mentally ill, and given that the previous US president is also manifestly mentally ill, and other tyrants in history, like Hitler, were also, we are facing a situation that clearly requires an intervention. Joining us to discuss the possibility that top officials in Russia's military and intelligence services, along with the oligarchs who are getting sanctioned, could remove Putin from office before he unleashes any of the 5,000 nuclear weapons he has at his fingertips is Marcy Shaw, a professor of history at Yale University who teaches the intellectual history of 20th and 21st century Central and Eastern Europe. She's the author of The Taste of Ashes, The Afterlife of Totalitarianism in Eastern Europe, and The Ukrainian Night, An Intimate History of Revolution. Her forthcoming book is Eyeglasses Floating in Space, Central European Encounters that Came About While Searching for Truth. And we'll discuss the need to understand that what is happening in Ukraine as we witness the attempted murder of a country and its people is because of one person, and he must be stopped. Then we'll look further into dissent within Russia's elites and speak with Scott Horton, a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security, who serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. He joins us to discuss the foiled assassination plot against President Zelensky carried out by Chechen hit teams who have been the favorite instruments of Putin's for political assassinations and the extraordinary revelation that the Ukrainians were tipped off about the hit teams by Russia's intelligence service, the FSB. Then finally, with the GOP and their right-wing media echo chamber torn between those who hate Putin and those like their leader Trump who love Putin, we will speak with James Risen, the senior national security correspondent at The Intercept and a former investigative journalist with The New York Times and author of The New York Times bestsellers State of War and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power and Endless War. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his stories about warrantless wiretapping by the NSA and in 2007 was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Currently the director of the Press Freedom Defense Fund, which has provided financial assistance for Maria Ressa's legal defense in the Philippines, he joins us to discuss his latest article at The Intercept, Will the GOP's Trumpist Wing Persist in Its Embrace of Putin? And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Marcy Shaw, who's a professor of history at Yale University, who teaches the intellectual history of 20th and 21st century Central and Eastern Europe. She is the author of The Taste of Ashes, The Afterlife of Totalitarianism in Eastern Europe, and The Ukrainian Night, An Intimate History of Revolution. And her forthcoming book is Eyeglasses Floating in Space, Central European Encounters that Came About While Searching for Truth. Welcome to Background Briefing. Marcy Shaw. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And you are among the six global voices on Putin's invasion of Ukraine at CNN. And what you've said is actually very, very powerful and quite moving. And that is that this is no longer felt like a situation where a man, Putin, is playing a high-stakes chess game. Now, it felt like a scene from Macbeth. My intuition is that an aging man facing his own death has decided to destroy the whole world. 
Ukraine is very possibly fighting for us all. So that is a very powerful image and it's apparently backed up to some extent. There may even be dissent within the highest ranks of Russian military and intelligence. So is it possible that Putin has gone off the deep end? Of course, it's very possible. And I should say I have no privileged epistemological access. You know, my comments were based on the fact that I listened quite carefully to his Crimea speech and other things he was saying as unpleasant as they were back in 2014. And I listened to him quite carefully on you know, Monday uh, a week ago, now 10 days ago. I'm not a native Russian speaker. I'm sure native Russian speakers would pick up still more. But even to me, it was quite clear that this was no longer the same person. Not that he was ever a nice person. He was shrewd. He was cold. He was cynical. He was calculating. But there was a sense in 2014 that really you were dealing with the grandmaster, you know, who knew how to play the game better than anybody else. And I had the distinct feeling listening to him talk about, you know, Russian history, Ukrainian history, you know, you know, well, you want to see decommunization, I'll show you decommunization. His Russian was no longer so good. He didn't look well. Um, and he sounded deranged. He sounded less sharp, less clever, less shrewd. And my intuition, this is only intuition, again, it, it can't be proven, was that we were now out of the you know master chess game analogy, and we were now in the Shakespearean drama analogy, where you know this was a man facing his own mortality who had an impulse to destroy the world. I think he's absolutely capable of that. I, I should also add that as a historian, one thing you see a lot is that lunatics play major historical roles all the time. I mean, one should never discount you know, the historical importance of, of lunatics. I think people tend to think, well, like, oh, if somebody's in a position of power, he must in some way be sane. No, there's no guarantee of that at all. In fact, it is just as much the rule for lunatics to play major historical roles as, as it is the exception. Well, Fiona Hill, who was on the National Security Council in, in the Trump administration and was featured in the uh, impeachment particularly giving evidence about what happened with that call that Trump made to Zelensky in which he was essentially blackmailing this young leader who's now under siege and under constant death threats from the Russians. It's worth noting that Trump was holding back these Javelin missiles as a bargaining chip in order to get Zelensky to give him dirt on Joe Biden. That's the level of interest that Trump had in in geopolitics and think about how important these javelin missiles are to the current situation vis-a-vis uh, -vis this David versus Goliath battle that's going on in Ukraine. I thought Fiona Hill did a very good job during that impeachment hearing. Um, we could talk about that for a long time. That was a, a, a another lunatic you know, playing a major historical role, unfortunately. I think what Fiona Hill understands very well is that Putin is capable of anything. Well, I was, in fact, that was a preface for, to my real question, which was that right. uh, Fiona just did an interview with Politico in which she said that Putin is perfectly capable of using a nuclear weapon. And that is something that we have to consider, surely, if you have the sort of caged animal syndrome where it's just not working out for him. And that seems to be the case. I mean, I hope it's the case. Otherwise, if he succeeds, then, you know, we have to consider what kind of country Ukraine will become. I can't even really bear the thought of contemplating that he could succeed. I am somehow desperately hopeful that in Russia itself, the Russians will figure out a way to get rid of him. There are clearly cracks. And the exchange that he had with his chief intelligence officer, Narishkin, a week or so ago, when he was asking him whether he supported the, you know, the, the sovereignty of these republics, and Narishkin was saying, well, you know, I will when, and he's like, hey, you know, speak clearly, you, you do or you will. This could actually be a grammar lesson in perfective versus imperfective verbs in, in Russian, padrzu ili padrzivayu. 
But what was significant about it was not the content or the subject, but the fact that there was actually a, a public crack, you know, in Putin's inner circle. I think people must know that he's losing his mind. I mean, that, the question is, is anybody going to do something about it? And again, I'm speaking with Marcy Shaw, who's a professor of history at Yale University, who teaches the intellectual history of 20th and 21st century Central and Eastern Europe. She is the author of The Taste of Ashes, The Afterlife of Totalitarianism in Eastern Europe, and The Ukrainian Night, An Intimate History of Revolution. And her forthcoming book is Eyeglasses Floating in Space, Central European Encounters that Came About While Searching for Truth. Well, in that same surreal National Security Council meeting in the Great Hall in the Kremlin, where the National Security Council were sitting in a semicircle way across this big hall, and you have the Tsar sitting up on his throne barking at them like they're errant schoolboys, the guy that everybody thought was incredibly hawkish and every reason to believe he is, Patrushev, the uh, former FSB chief, National Security Advisor, he even suggested, quaking with fear, (laughs) I might add, that maybe we should check with the Americans before we do this. And he got shouted down. So the thing that I've, I've often, in fact, I actually had had a conversation with, of all people, back in 2016, with Jill Stein, who was running as the Green candidate. And I tried to tell her that how dangerous Putin is, and she was being a useful idiot for the Russians, and she helped uh, elect Donald Trump by cutting into Hillary Clinton's vote. And I tried to point out that, you know, we've never had in geopolitics before the combination of national security and organized crime, nuclear weapons and the mafia. And that's what we've had with Putin. And now the crime boss looks like he's losing his marbles. To me, it's very important that we not spend too much time wondering like, well, let's see how it plays out in the next month. Is he really going crazy? I think this assumption that, that, that the world of political science often has, that all things being equal, people will act rationally. I think that all things are never equal and people act irrationally all the time. I mean, this is, I think, part of the disciplinary divide between political science and, and history. If you look at empirical cases, you know, people act irrationally really, really a lot of the time. You know, I, I just I don't think we can assume that Putin is somebody who can be negotiated with. There is no reason for this war to be happening. Nothing he has said makes any sense, you know, whatsoever. Oh, we have, you know, native Russian speakers being held hostage by Ukrainian Nazis. I mean, Ukrainian Nazis who happen to have a Russian speaking Jewish president. It obviously makes no sense whatsoever. And these are Ukrainian brothers. Therefore, we're going to come in and bomb their country and raise it to the ground. Uh, why? You know, what, is the, what is the logical reason for that? Well, they bombed the memorial to the Holocaust in uh, Kiev next to the yeah. uh, radio tower. I mean, I, I can say something else, perhaps, in, in defense of my, you know, Putin is deranged um, thesis that I admittedly based on, not on a scientific psychiatric examination, but on intuition. There was an interview Thursday morning on Echo Moskvi with Gleb Pavlovsky. Um, and Gleb, your, your listeners might not be familiar with Gleb Pavlovsky. He doesn't have as much of a profile in the English-speaking world because he doesn't speak English, but he was one of the political technologists, postmodern spin doctors who helped bring Putin to power. Um, he subsequently became very remorseful, fell out with Putin at least a dozen years ago, you know, and has changed sides, you know, and, and everyone can have their own opinion about that. But he, he's somebody who knows Putin extremely well. And he gave an interview on, on Echo Moskvi, this, you know, vaguely independent uh, Russian news station, you know, hours after the invasion of Ukraine began, you know, and he said, you know, don't, don't assume rationality. There is no rationality in this. None. There's not, there's not logic. There's not rationality. We can't be thinking that way. Well, you point out that on February the 24th, the Russian writer Viktor Shenderovich gave an interview to the Russian news channel Echo Moskvi. This is a war by one person, he said, and then 
the phone line was cut off. Well, subsequent to that, of course, Echo Moscovy has been taken off the air altogether. There, there's, this is obviously not in the interest of Russia or Russians in any rational way you can understand. I mean, people are sending their, you know, their kids, you know, their sons, you know, into Ukraine to kill other people and quite possibly to get killed themselves. And for what? Well, he is obviously Putin is becoming more and more isolated and Biden in the State of the Union last night made it clear that efforts are underway to cause pain to the Siloviki, to the oligarchs that he regulates. Do you think that that, in the combination with the more sensible people in the security services and in the military, and how do you think that that kind of pressure, in other words, is there a way to do a kind of group intervention by putting pressure on Putin's inner circle and oligarchs, etc.? In other words, can they do an intervention before something really terrible happens? I mean, we were really concerned about Donald Trump. Again, another mentally unstable world leader who mercifully is no longer president but uh, is planning on making a comeback. There was a great deal of concern towards the end of his tenure that he may use a nuclear weapon. And again, there were some adults in the room prepared to do an intervention, like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Is there any such hope that that might happen on the Russian side? I am desperately hopeful. Um, I have no particular intelligence. I certainly think it's something that people in Washington and people in the European Union have been thinking about a lot. Um, I'm hopeful to some extent that, you know, that, that ordinary Russian people will step up. You know, there is a petition that began almost immediately by the human rights activist um, Lev uh, Ponomaryov, um, called, you know, Nyet Vornia, which is, you know, Say No to War um, on Change.org, directed towards Russian citizens. Um, the language is very strong. You know, one of the things that it says is that, you know, when, when the Reichstag fire happened, it took some time for it to be exposed. Now we don't need to expose anything. Everything is already out there. We can see everything that's happening. Um, that's no longer the issue. You know, now we need to now now we need to make a moral stance. And as of this moment, you know, one million one hundred and fifty two thousand nine hundred and twenty eight people have signed that petition. That's a lot, you know, for for Russians when you're taking a risk. Um, they need more people on the streets. They're getting people on the streets. They arrested people the first day, but not enough. Obviously, if 100 people come out, they can arrest all 100. 1,000 come out, they can arrest all 1,000. They need a million, two million, five million people on the streets. Well, the Russians the, have to bring this man down. Well, look at what he's doing. I mean, but unfortunately, the Russian people aren't seeing that. So are there things that the United States government could be doing through soft power, through you know, just compiling the footage of what's really happening in Ukraine and somehow getting it to the Russian people who are getting this ridiculously sanitized version uh, that Russia is liberating Ukraine from a bunch of Nazis. That I am desperately hopeful about that. I mean, I know a lot of my Russian friends are somewhat skeptical. Um, my Russian friends are obviously not a representative sample, just like I, I, I have a lot of friends in America. I mean, I, I feel very fortunate for that, but I didn't really know any Trump supporters. It was another world. And so I have a lot of Russian friends, but I don't actually know personally any Putin supporters. Everyone I know is on the other side. Um, but some friends of mine have begun, and it just came out today, you know, a new campaign, which is Skip Putin, Talk to Russians. Um, it was published in Eurozine. It, you can look it up in English and in seven or eight other languages, you know, and it's a desperate campaign to say, don't stop talking to your Russian friends. Talk to everybody. Keep talking. Keep going. Don't stop. You know, send them real information. If you can't get it through in an ordinary way, get it through in another way. You know, look, look for your look. look Look for the person who, who cut your hair when you were in somewhere on vacation. Look for a business contact. Look for an, an academic contact. Use all connections. Skip Putin. Talk to Russians. Email them. Message them. Text them. You know, try to get through to them. 
Um, it may be idealistic. I mean, I understand why there are many people who have kind of given up on them, but I, I don't believe it's a whole country of sadists. I mean, I, I don't believe it's a whole country of 144 million people who want nothing more than to bomb, rape and pillage, you know, Ukrainians. I'm willing to believe that you get some percentage, you know, of, of statists and psychopaths in every society. But I don't think it's enough. And I don't think it's 200,000 worse. I, I think there are I, I think there's a hope that some of those soldiers who were sent in who don't really understand what they're doing there will defect. Well, I believe there's some evidence that that's already happening, that some of them have already sabotaged the gas tanks on their tanks so they run out of diesel. There have been a number of surrenders, etc. That is certainly the hope. But, you know, they, their Russian forces are seen to be making advances in the south. Not, they seem to be stalled in the north. And, of course, yeah. Lukashenko, the, the gangster next door in Belarus, he'll probably be sending his troops in soon as well. It is a very, very grim military situation that the Ukrainians are, are following. So again, the hope is that it's all going to unravel from the Russian side. And as we are discussing, there are glimmers of that possibility. But when you look at history, of course, I mean, you know, Hitler was obviously <laughs> mentally unstable, particularly towards the end. Uh, that was mentioned, by the way, by Ukraine's ambassador to the UN before the United Nations, who, by the way, the General Assembly voted overwhelmingly to condemn Russia. But he mentioned, the Ukrainian representative to the UN mentioned Hitler being in his bunker, and maybe we can hope that Putin takes the same path that Hitler took at the end. Yes, hopefully much faster. (laughs) Immediately. The speech that Zelensky gave, and I don't even know if speech is the right word for it, last Wednesday night, he made an address, perhaps 10, 15 minutes long, not very long, not to Putin, but directly to Russian citizens. Um, He made it in Russian, um, which is his native language as well. I, I I was an agnostic about Zelensky before that. I had not followed the politics of Ukraine that carefully leading up to this, certainly not at that level. Um, I hadn't followed his presidency carefully enough to have very strong opinions about just, you know, how good or not good a job he was doing. But that was a remarkable address. Listening to that and how he spoke to those people, it was very real. It was not political. It was not cowardly and it was not cavalier you know, and it was not threatening. It was extremely human. You know, he was saying, you know, he was saying, please listen, you know, do you really want to come fight us? Do you really want to come kill us? Because we don't want to fight you and we don't want to kill you. If you come here and attack us, we will defend ourselves. You know, you will not see our backs. We will not run away. You will see our faces. We will look you in the eye, but this is not what we want. Please don't do this. Um, and it was remarkable. It, it was actually quite extraordinary. In closing, Marcy, there is a sort of geopolitical theory called the, the Samson theory, where the, the leader takes the temple down with him, you know. And, well, do you agree with me that maybe this is time for Biden to talk about the Samson scenario? And, you know, they did a very good job of publishing U.S. intelligence saying what Putin was going to do when they were absolutely accurate. But maybe it's time for them to start talking about the fact that this guy's capable of taking down the whole world, as, you, as you've pointed out, and put everybody on warning and maybe encourage those people inside the military and intelligence services and amongst the oligarchs in Russia to recognize that this madman is about to pull down the whole temple. Mm-hmm. I would definitely vote for that. I don't think there's any reason to keep that hidden. And I don't think, I certainly don't think I'm the only one who in, has intuited this, has noticed this. I don't think Fiona Hill is the only person who has. I mean, I think sometimes things are so horrific and so inconceivable that you know we have a kind of defense mechanism against taking them in fast enough. But nothing is being hidden. 
I mean, this is in some sense really the difference between the 1930s and the present moment. I'm a historian. I work on the 1930s. I see lots of parallels. One thing that's very different about the present moment is that everything is, is right out there. In Slavic languages, there's a phrase, obnagenia, the laying bare. Everything is right out there. We can, there's no secret. We can see everything that's happening. Well, Marcia Shaw, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I think it's very important what you're pointing out. And I hope that the message gets out there that maybe we are dealing with a mentally unstable man with, what, 5,000 nukes at his fingertip. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I am, and, I am going to remain desperately hopeful. Well, I'll join you in that. And I, again, I've been speaking with Marcy Shaw, a professor of history at Yale University who teaches the intellectual history of 20th and 21st century Central and Eastern Europe. She is the author of The Taste of Ashes, The Afterlife of Totalitarianism in Eastern Europe and The Ukrainian Night, An Intimate History of Revolution. And her forthcoming book is Eyeglasses Floating in Space, Central European Encounters That Came About While Searching for Truth. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into dissent at Putin and his war in Ukraine within Russia's elites. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Scott Horton, a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Scott Horton. Great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Scott. And you're just, uh, you just got back from the UK yesterday uh, where you were meeting with British intelligence officials, I assume former ones, or maybe not. But in any case, I take it that the buzz is that the human intelligence coming out of Russia is extraordinary, that there are high-level leaks coming out, and there's a lot of dissent within the highest ranks of the Russian military, and the intelligence services. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's quite accurate. I, I think uh, we've seen a really dramatic turnaround in the way the um, U.S. and U.K. intelligence communities have dealt with this. In the past, the sort of tactical, detailed information about military operations that they get, they hold very closely. They don't share with the public. And in this case... Uh, both the UK and the US at roughly the same time made a decision uh, to uh, spurn that past practice and instead go public in almost real time with quite detailed intelligence about uh, Putin's plans uh, with respect to Ukraine um, and to uh, make uh, very harsh accusations against him and his government based on that intelligence. Uh, and I think as it uh, as it began, there was certainly a good deal of skepticism about this. I mean, too many a lot of people recalling the early days of uh, the Iraq controversy and the claims of um, of uh, mushroom clouds and things like that, which proved to be completely false. In this case, however, the intelligence they got proved to be extremely accurate. And this intelligence, Beyond what was shared with the public, uh, we now understand um, that uh, quite detailed information was shared with other NATO leaders uh, that was at the level of identifying uh, Russian um, military units, uh, listing the commanders of each unit, uh, describing their uh, immediate uh, objectives in, in uh, uh, case of their deployment. Um, uh, talking about political plans that were uh, put alongside the military plans and so forth. And now one day into the operation, it appears that all this intelligence was accurate. 
And so I think the follow-up question has been, so what's the source of this intelligence? And I would say, based on everything I've been able to gather, I don't think it was just picking up uh, signals or communications. So I think we're, we're talking about uh, what is most likely um, a very high-level human intelligence source, both within uh, the Russian military uh, and within Russian intelligence. It has to be on both sides here. Um, and, um, you know, what's motivating this, I would say, it's a hypothesis, of course, I would say it looks like people very high up and uh, both sides, that is the military and the intelligence side, uh, did not approve of this invasion of Ukraine uh, and were releasing information to the West as part of an effort to derail it. And uh, today, of course, we uh, see that an assassination squad uh, was sent uh, to, um, to take down Ukrainian President Zelensky. It was intercepted. Uh, the members of the squad were assassinated. And the Ukrainian military announced after doing this that they had received leaked intelligence from the Russians about this squad and its objective, and that's what enabled them uh, to stop it. So uh, this is the first time I think we've seen military authorities actually point a finger at leaks coming from uh, very, very high levels in Russia. So it's quite, a, quite an amazing development. And what you're telling us about, uh, Scott, is that Alexei Danilov, the Secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, broadcast this information on Ukrainian TV, how they referred to them as a unit of Kadyrov, Kadyrovites. Uh, that's Kadyrov being the Chechen warlord. This elite Chechen special forces uh, they're sent in to Kiev to kill Zelensky and that Ukrainian officials were informed by Russia's Federal Security Service, the FSB. And the information was used to kill... I, I, there were two squads. I know they killed one. They say they're in the process of killing the other squad of uh, Kadyrovites, right? But I think the point is, is, Scott, just in terms of the history of political assassinations, these Chechens, Kadyrov's Chechens, have been Putin's favorite tool of political assassination, Anna Polakovskaya of Novaya Gazeta, then also Boris Nemtsov, right there in front of the Kremlin, and um, a couple of... Uh, targets in West Germany. They captured some of the Chechen hit squad then. I think uh, there's quite a few other cases, haven't they? So That's the, exactly the right. connection between Putin and Kadir using Kadyrov as a cutout is pretty clear, isn't it? Yes. Kadyrov has basically run an assassinations bureau uh, for, uh, for Putin. That's been clear for quite some time. Um, and it's not battlefield and war scenario for the most part. I mean, the uh, it has been uh, hit to hit his political enemies inside Russia, in the near abroad countries of the former Soviet Union. There have been a large number of assassinations that have occurred in Ukraine as well and all across Europe. Uh, so some of the cases you you listed, you know, there definitely there's evidence of Chechen assassins being active in the UK, in Sweden, in Norway and many, many other countries. So uh, this is a big operation of his. And, uh, you know, uh, what does it take to get a senior intelligence officer to blow the whistle on an operation of this sort as it's running? That's, uh, that's a pretty amazing thing. And again, I'm speaking with Scott Horton, who is a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Well... Uh, earlier segment, uh, just preceding you, Scott, we were talking about Putin's sanity, frankly. I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise to people that a lot of tyrants in history have proved to be insane, like Hitler. Uh, but we just had a president who's manifestly insane, Donald Trump. And there was a concern towards the end of his tenure, because as we learned subsequently, he, did, he, he refused to accept defeat and has basically taken over the GOP and is trying to make a comeback in 2024. So it's not entirely surprising that 
Putin's mental health should be questioned, and it should be. And he's got 5,000 nuclear weapons at his fingertip, and he's so unbelievably ruthless. I, I, for the life of me, I don't understand how there could be any apologists for Putin in the West, given his history of using the most hideous forms of brutality. First of all, he came to power. He came to actually he came to power via a honey trap video of his political opponent, the prosecutor general, set him up in a with a couple of hookers, and then uh, he blew up a bunch of apartment buildings on the outside of of Moscow, killing about three hundred innocent Russians. That's how he got into the Chechen war. And then he flattened Grozny, which is what he's doing now with uh, Ukraine, just indiscriminate bombing of civilian targets. And then, of course, there was attempted Chechen takeover of the theater in Moscow where they pumped, the FSB pumped in an aerosol version of fentanyl. And, you know, they let all these innocent Russians die because they didn't have any Narcan on hand to revive them all because the gas was classified by Putin and Putin ran the operation. So that gives you an idea of how literally cares about his own people. So it shouldn't be a surprise about what he's doing to the Ukrainian people. I, I think all, all that's correct. And in fact, uh, you know, you, you give this long list of things that he did before, which, of course, uh, people who've studied it know, uh, but you rarely heard any reference uh, uh, to any of this by American officials until uh, Tony Blinken gave his UN speech, and then it all came out, listed item by item, pretty much just as you have done it. I think you know the evidence for all of this is extremely clear. Uh, and of course, what we don't know is what went on behind the scenes in the formulation of the invasion plans uh, for Ukraine and what sort of object uh, objections he faced. Although it's clear enough that this this plan formulation went on over a period of many months, it wasn't wasn't days, it wasn't weeks, it was protracted. And I think now it's also quite clear that there were many people, uh, both in the general staff and in the intelligence services, who thought this was an extremely foolish thing to do, and who raised objections. Um, so you know that's an important background fact here. Uh, and if they're um, if they didn't approve of it. They think it's foolish. They now see it not succeeding. You've got to think that this undermines Putin's uh, position in um, in Russia today. So can they do an intervention now before it's too late? Because, you know, Fiona Hill suggested in an interview in Politico that Putin is perfectly capable of using a nuclear weapon. Well, you know, Ian, today is actually the anniversary of the death of Stalin. Uh, and as all this goes on, I keep thinking of that uh, and thinking of that under the heading of interventions. Um, you know, how exactly did Stalin die? We still don't know. Um, but we know that there was a small group of intimates who all mostly detested him around him at the time he di at the time he died. Um, and, you know, I think that's a scenario that could very easily repeat itself, and it would be appropriate in some ways since Putin has decided to model his own reign in Russia on that of Joseph Stalin. Well, how much does he have a hardcore support then in in the war in Ukraine? I mean, we know that the conscripts, a lot of them didn't even know that they were going to war, and many have been captured, and they're not really... Uh, particularly enthusiastic about fighting their brothers and cousins and fellow Slavs. So I mean, it's this is a war that's happening because of one man, and this was pointed out today in the United Nations by the U.S. representative, that this whole, and, they, and of course the General Assembly voted overwhelmingly to condemn Putin. This is all happening because of one man. But what kind of support does this one man have, do you think? And can they pull off a military victory you know, if they don't in Ukraine, then you really know that Putin's in trouble. If he pulls off a military victory, you also know he'll be in trouble because he won't be able to, to occupy the country. So I don't see any way that this is going to get better for Putin. No, I, I think I think his situation is um, is dire right now. 
Uh, and it's not just the military side. It's not just that he has people who don't trust him and don't respect his judgment at very senior echelons in his national security state. It's also that, you know, he's surrounded by a circle of, let's say, three or four th- a dozen oligarchs uh, who he is allowed to amass huge fortunes uh, who are all seeing their for- their fortunes simply evaporate right now. Um, I mean, I think most of them have probably lost half their fortunes right now. Give it another week, they'll probably lose most of the rest too. Uh, the sanctions targeting them have hardly begun. Um, so he's got, he's surrounded himself now with people he can't trust. Um, and that's, I think, a, a difficult situation for him. We'll just see how long he lasts. Well, just in closing, is it possible that he has some terminal illness? I know he's got serious back problems, but the frightening prospect is that this is a man who's facing his own death and is going to take the rest of us down with him. Well, I'm not qualified to answer those questions because I'm uh, not not a psychiatrist, uh, nor do I have any uh, health degrees. But I would just say as a layperson, just looking at him and the way he behaved in that um, National Security Council meeting, which was broadcast, it was chilling. Uh, And his face just looks odd. I mean, it doesn't look like it's just aging. It looks like there's something the matter with him. Yeah, he's taking steroids. So something like that. I mean, produce, producing these sort of bulbous protrusions in part or Botox or something. Uh, I don't know. And then the way he behaved with his underlings there was, um, I mean, I think from his perspective, perhaps a demonstration of his power and authority. Uh, but I think to many watching it, it would suggest mental illness. Well, Scott Horton, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I'm speaking with Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. We can take a brief station break and back looking into how the GOP and their right-wing media echo chamber is torn between those who hate Putin and those like their leader Trump who love Putin. How many of us, how many of us, how many jealous, real friends, there's not many of us, we smile at each other, but how many honest, trust issues, switch up the number, I can't be bothered, I cannot blame you, for having an angle, I ain't got no issues. Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Risen, the senior national security correspondent at The Intercept and a former investigative journalist with The New York Times and the author of State of War and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power and Endless War. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his stories about warrantless wiretaps by the NSA and in 2007 he was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and is currently the director of the Press Freedom Defense Fund which has provided financial assistance for Maria Ressa's legal defense in the Philippines. And his latest article at The Intercept is, Will the GOP's Trumpist Wing Persist in Its Embrace of Putin? Welcome to Background Briefing, James Risen. Thanks for having me. So thanks for joining us. And there's clearly a split in the the GOP and in their right-wing media echo chamber. They seem to be torn between those who hate Putin and those who, like the current leader of the GOP, Donald Trump, love Putin. So how much do you think this war, this actually, which I think could be described as the murder in plain sight or the attempted murder in plain sight of a country and its people, how much do you think it's affecting the, uh, the balance between those who hate Putin and those who love Putin in the GOP? Well, that's an excellent question. I think as far as I can tell, you know, most of them now are denouncing the invasion, but that's very different from uh, admitting that they've been wrong about Putin and about authoritarianism. They've been fairly narrow for the most part in what they've been saying in the last few days. And if you look back, what what they were really 
attracted to about Putin was a mythology that they had built up around him, which is really kind of a, a fantasy that they built up that he was the guardian of Western civilization, and he was a Christian nationalist who was who had brought back churches in Russia, who uh, cracked down on gays, and who was opposed, who was the great world leader against uh, the woke left. And that was really the engine that drove their support for Putin. And it was all this myth that they had built up about him. They didn't care that he was a dictator. In fact, they kind of liked it. And I think it's similar to their attraction to Viktor Orban in Hungary, who they are, you know, CPAC, the big conservative organization, is still planning a big conference in Hungary next month, or I guess this month, just because they are so attracted to Orban's form of autocracy and uh, his his attacks on the press and uh, immigrants and things like that. So they, I don't believe they've changed their fundamental views of what autocracy, how uh, seductive autocracy could be in their long-term goal of killing the left, of destroying any uh, attempt to uh, increase tolerance in America. And so I think it's still a dangerous virus on the right. And uh, I don't think it's been extinguished by the invasion. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out in um, more main, among more mainstream Republicans, because as you know, most Republicans, even the conventional ones, have mostly refused to ever disassociate themselves with Trump. And as a result, they keep ignoring him and then they get overwhelmed by him. And um, so it's, it's a real, it's, it's, it's a very dangerous uh, situation in the Republican Party, I think. But surely, uh, James Risen, it shouldn't be a surprise that right-wingers in America and, and around the world like Putin because he's, a, he's, he's not a right-winger, he's a far-right-winger. You know, if anything, he's a fascist. What I find yeah, extraordinary, yeah. But what I find extraordinary, Jim, is that people on the left in this country don't seem to see who he really is. I mean, they, I don't know whether they got, they're still thinking of somehow he's, he's a leftist. I mean, I don't get it. I mean, I don't understand why. You, know, you, know, you people, mean like some of the really extreme leftists? No, I mean, I'd say the editors of, those who make apologies for him, like the editors of The Nation and uh, Matt Taibbi. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I, I would call them extreme leftists. I wouldn't even call them leftists. I'd call them, I, I actually think they're just pro-Trump. I mean, I don't think it's uh, that hard to understand. I think there are people who, you know, the, there's people who call themselves leftists who are actually just right-wing, you know, pro-Trumpers, I think. I think that, you know, it's a, it's a distinction. The distinction between them and the right-wing is a distinction without a difference. So it should be obvious, though, surely, that Trump's GOP and Putin's united Russia are very, very much alike. First of all, their primary purpose and their number one priority is to take care of oligarchs. They're yeah. also into trolling, they're into culture wars, and they're into rewriting history. I mean, the list yeah. goes on. The comparisons are so real. I just don't understand why the Democrats can't sort of point this out. Yeah, I think that's it's been uh, a real problem to uh, hold Trump and his ilk accountable for everything they've said and done. And I blame, frankly, I blame social media for a lot of that. I think that um, it's been very, you know, the the inundation of disinformation and lies on you know all forms of social media 
has had a very toxic effect. You know, I think we're very lucky that Trump lost in 2020. Um, and I think the danger is that, you know, the January 6th was in historical terms could be like the beer hall pooch for Hitler, something that he's able to come back from. Well, you know, he's dodged so many bullets. Everybody keeps, I don't know how much it's wishful thinking that they keep thinking that finally this man has been one step ahead of the sheriff is going to be nailed. Right. Now we're learning that the new DA in uh, Manhattan has pretty much dropped the case, it seems, against him, which is right. obviously requires some investigation as to his motives. Right. Do you think that what's happening now, though, in Ukraine, I mean, the fact that Trump still praises Putin. And I know, it's just unbelievable. I, I think that, you know, the, the I think there's more to come about Trump's relationship with Russia and Putin. I think this may, hopefully it will shake loose more information. Um, I, I would not be surprised if we see more defections out of the Russian government, because Putin's government has become, you know, there, there used to be kind of a sense that it was a regime. And now it's just a one, one man strong man. And I think that that may lead a bunch of uh, people in the Russian government to defect. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some key defections that lead, bring us more information. No, indeed, we were discussing that in the segment before you came on, uh, James. And, of course, one indicator of that is that these Chechen hit teams that, you know, we know that the Chechen hit teams are Putin's favorite instruments of political assassination. They killed Nemtsov and Anna Polskovskaya and, and uh, others. And they were were rounded up and killed by the Ukrainians because they were sent into Kiev to kill Zelensky. Right. But the tip-off yeah. came from Russia's uh, intelligence service, the FSB. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would, I think there's a lot of Russian intelligence officers serving overseas uh, who I would bet that the agency, the CIA, is pitching right now to uh, either defect or begin to work for them in, the, in place. That would be my guess. And I think there's, you know, I think today I saw that a, one of the top Russian officials at the World Bank quit today. So I, I would expect to see some. Hopefully, you know, I think Putin has been very secretive about his money and finances. But I think this is so unpopular within the Russian leadership that um, I think you'll see some cracks. Not, I don't think anybody will challenge his power, but... I think people will leave. Well, in our first segment today, we were looking into the possibility that Putin is mentally ill. I mean, and that shouldn't come as too much of a surprise. The former president of the United States, Donald Trump, is manifestly mentally ill. And yeah. Even, yeah. even the Russians, by the way, apparently, according to British intelligence, the leaks from the, the National Security Council meeting when they decided to intervene on Trump's part in 2016 and help elect him and hurt Hillary Clinton. Apparently, they admitted or understood that Trump was mentally ill and therefore was very susceptible to their blandishments. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's that's the big question to me is, um, is he so unbalanced that he might start a nuclear war? That's obviously the big question. And all I can say is I hope not. But everything I know about it is that he's had a longstanding, you know, back, you know, there's a famous story I think I'd mentioned in my piece about how humiliated he felt when the Berlin Wall fell and that his humiliation has never really left him and that he's, he sees himself as rebuilding a Russian empire. And, uh, you know, Ukraine is obviously the most independent part of the former Soviet, you know, the, uh, of the, of the former Soviet union, except of course, for the Baltic States, which are all now members of NATO. And that would be, if, 
I think if he stays in power and wins in Ukraine, I think there'll be a major border crisis between NATO and Russia over the Baltics. Well, that is obviously what strategists fear that would be his next step, but I'm not sure he's going to get out of this one, yeah. even alive, maybe. I mean, this is this seems to be going from bad to worse, even though the military yeah. power I mean, is so overwhelming. Well, the, the He's starting to slaughter civilians in huge yeah. numbers. The thing that's been surprising to me is how incompetent the Russian military has been. Um, and I think this is actually probably an intelligence goldmine for NATO and for the U.S. military to see this, you know, the Russian army in action on a large scale because we haven't seen a large scale Russian military operation since World War II, really. And um, so this is, it's pretty, I mean, if you're a Russian, (laughs) it's pretty depressing how bad they are, how incompetent and just uh, horrible at operations. And it's good for the West. So, Right, but wouldn't it be, I mean, I know it's a, a bit of a stretch, but say we had a crazy president and we and we just had one, uh, Donald Trump, yeah. who decided to invade Canada. I don't think the U.S. Right. military would be behaving any differently than the Russians are. They're, they're fighting their brothers and they're thinking, what the hell are we doing? You know, yeah. they've been told a bunch yeah, of lies. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, it's, uh, well, you know, I remember when, Right before Trump was elected, I remember saying to somebody, a friend of mine, that to me, the the best case scenario would be that Trump would just be like Berlusconi, kind of a, a crook and a thief who would loot the government. And the worst case scenario would be he would be like Hitler and start a nuclear war. And I still believe we got closer to the best case scenario than the worst case. I think Trump was corrupt loser and thief who didn't start a nuclear war. But I think if he comes back with a crazy Putin and a crazy Trump, both in place at the same time, all bets are off about how, whether we'd have another nuclear war. Two sick men driven by vengeance. I thank you for joining us, uh, James Risen. Sure, yeah, it's pretty depressing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is. (laughs) But I think uh, it's important to be realistic about who these uh, people are and particularly what kind of mental state they have. And again, I've been speaking with James Risen, the senior national security correspondent at The Intercept and a former investigative journalist with The New York Times and the author of the New York Times bestseller, State of War and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power, and Endless War. In 2006, he won the Pulitzer Prize for his stories about warrantless wiretapping by the NSA. And in 2007, he was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And he's currently the director of the Press Freedom Defense Fund, which has provided financial assistance for Maria Reyes' legal defense in the Philippines. And his latest article at The Intercept is, Will the GOP's Trumpist Wing Persist in Its Embrace of Putin? This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.